Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mav Viola. Shit, you know, horsewomen, fucking hot. Like that's... Mm. That and more, but before that, the next Risk live stream, the first one of 2021, is January 15th. That's Friday, January 15th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. We'll have Calvin S. Cato, Randy Williams, Annie Tan, Joe Charnitsky, and myself all telling incredible true stories. Only 100 tickets available. You have to go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets. That's 9.30 p.m. Eastern on Friday, January 15th. And over at thestorystudio.org, we have a two-day Level 1 Online Group Storytelling Workshop with Amy Salloway on January 26th and January 28th, as well as a free half-hour webinar with Julia Whitehouse on how to bring your characters to life in your stories on January 26th. Get on over to thestorystudio.org to find out more. And of course, we do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses or other organizations all at thestorystudio.org. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is FKA Jazz. Behind me now, FKA Jazz is the artist name of Samir Zarif, who is an editor, an audio editor on the podcast here. And his latest release, beautiful stuff. It's called Lineage. Look it up by FKA Jazz. Well, folks, I want to make some comments at the end of today's episode, during the end hosting segment about where we're at right now, as, you know, what where we're at in the country right now. But before that, I'd really like us to just be able to focus on 
these fantastic stories today. All very funny, all very real and human, and not having a whole lot to do with <laughs> current events at all, you know, so let's enjoy. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Rich Tackenberg. I just realized it was recorded at the last Risk Live show that happened in a theater at the Virgil in Los Angeles. But before that, a story by Mav Viola making her second appearance on the show. This one was also recorded in Los Angeles last Christmas time, not 2020, but uh, 2019. Here she is now. This is Mav Viola with a story we call Stepsisters. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was not quite as cool as I am now. <laughs> I was uh, a little shaver, a little conservative shaver. Uh, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I had conservative parents. I grew up in a beautiful little neighborhood called Green Hill Farms, which is the gayest neighborhood ever. Um, that's the gayest name for a neighborhood. Like, that's Mayberry, you know? It just was so perfect and pristine, and nobody got divorced, ever. And I grew up in that neighborhood, and across the street from me was a little girl who I thought was so cool. She wore her hair in, like, a low pone, like a low pony, you know? And she had a blazer and a little brooch that was a horse. Like, she liked horses. Like, little bitches who like horses. <laughs> Shit, you know, horsewomen, fucking hot. Like, that's... Mm. I got a good core, you know? Just... I had my eyes on her, you know? But I grew up super religious, super Catholic, and then that turned into uber-Christian. I went on mission trips to Tegucigalpa and Dominican Republic and all kinds of places. Like, I was so Christian that when I would get a green light at a stoplight, I would give credit to God by going, the Lord, like I, it was bad, you know, it was bad. Like I wore jean skirts, like long jean skirts, you know, Ugh. and no slit, you know, just straight <laughs> denim, denim to the floor, like just ugh, with the denim drawstring, you know, like why do we need more denim? But I had my eyes on this neighbor, and we became quick friends. And she was cool, man. She taught me how to crush up flowers and put it in water and sell it as perfume, you know, to the neighbors. We made bank off that shit. And then my mom and my dad started going through shit. You know, I was about 12, 13, and they decided to separate. And lo and behold, my mom was having an affair with my friend, horse girl's father. Real talk of the town shit right there. You know what I mean? Small town. Green Hill Farms. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so we were no longer friends. We were no longer close because her dad was boning my mom. <laughs> and um, that's the way that goes, you know? My mom and uh, Horse Girl's dad decided to... <laughs> I almost called him Mr. Ed. I mean, we might as well, just so we don't get into legal battles. My mom and Mr. Ed decided to continue their affair. And they ended up actually getting married when I was about 15. And he's a wonderful man. He's in my life now. They're still married. He's so great. I get it. Like, now that I'm an adult, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, I get it. You needed to fuck. Like, you... And dad, stop fucking. You needed to fuck. Okay, I get it. It's all making sense. Like, don't affairs make so much more sense now that we're grown? Like, in the, at the time when you're a kid, you're like, it's all fuck. Like, now I'm like, yeah, everybody needs to fuck. Like, let's just all agree and fuck, right? Um... <laughs> So my mom and my dad split. My mom goes with Mr. Ed. My friend, horse girl, and I, we're not speaking anymore. She's mad. All the kids rebel. I get super into Christianity and like go down that rabbit hole. Everyone thinks I'm fine. All the other kids are freaking out, acting the fool. I'm like straight Ed, straight A's. Like I know it's hard because I have tattoos and a shaved head and all that shit to believe that, but like I was hardcore straight edge, like just Jesus-loving freak, just a freak for the Bible, just freaking on that Bible, freaking on some Jesus. 
I didn't even kiss a boy. I didn't hold hands with a boy. I didn't do shit. I didn't do anything in high school. I was just like straight A's. I had to ask guys to go to the dance with me. You know what I mean? Like nobody fuck with Mav. <laughs> so then later down the line, my mom and Mr. Ed are married and they decide that, oh, their daughters were like really good friends growing up. Like we should reunite them and bond them. They need to bond. So over a Christmas break while um, I was visiting home, I was about 21, my mom and my stepdad decided to take me and my stepsister now to New York, to New York City to bond. You know, that's what you do when you grow up in Virginia. You go to the big city. So they take us to the big city and they're like, this is going to be great. They're going to bond. They're going to reconnect. We're going to make our amends. You know, this is just like, it's going to all come full circle. And boy, did it. (laughs) So... We're in New York. It's the coldest New York has ever seen, like, in a hundred years. No joke. Like, every block, we have to stop at a gap and get a new layer, you know? Like, I got, like, peacoats and Henleys, and, like, my gender's all over the place. We don't know what's happening. (laughs) So we're not even speaking. We're just, like, pounding spaghetti and putting on layers, and we're not bonding at all. Nobody's bonding third night we go up to the hotel room my parents are like we're gonna you know go to bed and my stepsister turns to me and goes well why don't we go get like a street dog or some nuts or whatever and I was like okay yeah and she's like let's go and I was like just the two of us and they're like go bond you know so we go downstairs and my stepsister who's a party animal always has been and I'm all super fucking Christian at this point she's like let's go to a bar you know I'm like I've never been to a bar you know (laughs) so we go to this bar And we're each having a beer. Mind you, this is the first time I've ever had alcohol. Like, I'm 21 years old. I've never really had alcohol. Like, I think I've taken a sip of my dad's wine at some point. And my mom used to put whiskey on my gums when I was a baby because I wouldn't shut the fuck up. (laughs) So she's like, pass out. You know, it's when it was like, okay, to beat kids and give them whiskey. You know, I don't know. Like, back in the little house in the prairie days. She's like, here's a peppermint stick and a penny. Go ahead. (laughs) Catholic shit. I heard that. Yeah, Catholic. That's some Catholic shit right there. Yeah. So we go to this bar, we're having a beer, I'm like three sips in, she's talking, and all of a sudden, I just, I'm not hearing anything she's saying, I'm just watching her fucking mouth say the words, and I'm seeing her like, she's still got the low pone, you know? (laughs) And her hands are moving, and she's just speaking in this way, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I'll be right back. And I go drunkenly stumble with three sips of beer to the bathroom, and I look in the mirror at myself, and I just say, stop, stop. And I splash some water on my face. I'm like, get a grip, you know? (laughs) I don't cuss at this point. I'm like, the fudge, get a grip, you know? I'm still loving Jesus. I probably said a prayer. I guarantee I said a prayer. We've blocked it at this point. So I check in, I get all freshened up. I go back out. She's pounding shots of Patron with the bartender who owns the bar, who's also a lesbian. And... They're pounding Patron. I don't even know alcohol. To me, it's a tiny little cup of water. I don't know. She's like, it's Patron. And my stepsister's Mexican. She's just all fucking... She's like rolling R's left and right. I'm like, what are you saying? What's Patron? Like, I don't know. So I just start doing what she tells me to do because she's got the low pone and low pone's in control. You do what the low pone tells you to do. Horsewoman tells you what to do. You fucking do it. So I'm pounding Patron, and I'm drinking beer. I don't know what's happening. We decide to go back to the hotel. We're stumbling through Times Square. All of Times Square just starts to tilt on its side. We get to the hotel. She's like, do you want to have a cigarette? I'm like, what's a cigarette? (laughs) And cool, you know, I'm just, everything to do with her is just the coolest thing in the whole world. And like, you'd think I was 14, I'm 21 years old, guys, like... So she lights a cigarette with the bellhop who starts telling us about how he was a doctor in his country and like he can't practice here. And then she starts talking like politics. And then I'm like, I kind of want to like kiss your mouth and your brain. Like what's happening to me right now? What's happening? Because she's smart and she's hot and she's low pone. So we're smoking the cig. And you know, cigarettes, they make you more dizzy. So now I'm out of my fucking mind. And we get in the elevator to go up to the room and we're in the elevator and she leans against the elevator wall. And I'm like, what? You know? And she just looks at me and she goes, can I kiss you? What's going through my head is like, are we related? (laughs) (laughs) How's this work? (laughs) 
We're from Virginia. We're not from West Virginia. <laughs> so I'm like processing real quick and I just go, I don't even think I consented outwardly. I was just like, Meh, and she just comes in for the kill and plants one on me. And we start making out in this elevator. <laughs> me and my fucking stepsister, dude. And like... And the elevator doors opens, and she pushes me out against the wall, which at the time, I didn't know I was a top. I'm a fucking top. Look at me. I'm a top. I'm a top. Not at that time. I was the straight chick that she was turning. You know how many straight chicks I've turned since then? That was the one time I let someone turn me. She pushes me against the wall. We start going at it even more. I'm talking tongues and shit. I'm like, is this blood? Are we blood? What are, what's happening? Like, just but I'm ready to fucking scissor whatever we got to do. <laughs> whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like medieval times. Let's get this on. So, <laughs> so we're making out against the wall and then we stumbling down the hallway and we're making out and like, it's fucking on, you know, like shit's happening down here that I did not even like, I'm ready to abandon Jesus. That's how gay I'm turning, you know? <laughs> And then my stepfather walks out of the hotel room. He didn't have glasses on, so I don't think he saw us, but he's like, girls! <laughs> he just looks at us and he's like, girls, get in the room! <laughs> You're making a lot of noise! We were like, yeah, we, we're about to make some more, okay? We got two beds in that room. <laughs> You're deaf, mom's dumb, we're fine. <laughs> We go into that room and just lay so stiffly <laughs> side by side, like it never fucking happened, <laughs> like side by side. Woke up the next morning. She's like, are you hungover? And I was like, no. And she's like, it's Patron, like 4 p.m. <laughs> 4 p.m. rolls around. I was like, what the fuck happened last night? <laughs> and let me just say, like, we've never, ever spoken about it to this day. <laughs> But when I see that bitch at Christmas, every year since, you better believe I give her eyes across the fucking room. Like, if you want to do this shit again, I'm down. Like, who's topping who now? You know what I mean? She taught me everything I know about being gay. Everything in one fell swoop. We didn't even have to make love to know how to do that shit. This is the first time I've really ever told people, you know? If you could keep this in the room, that would be great for me. But just so you know how the story ends, um, I did turn out to be a lesbian. So, you know, I don't know if you questioned that, but here I am today. Thank you guys so much. You guys are amazing. Bless you. Mav Viola, oh my god. You know this is a podcast, yeah, Mav? Great, fantastic. We got the release form. Um, I love my sister and she loves me when I look in her eyes, it's me I see She makes me laugh, even when I want to cry I love my sister, and that's no lie This is, uh, this takes place in the mid-90s. I am 26 years old. I just have been in LA for about four months. I am working at a movie trailer house learning how to edit. And I like editing uh, because I'm a control freak. So I like the idea of kind of being alone in a room and figuring things out. And you'll see it when it's ready. That's sort of my speed. Um, but I don't really love the company I'm at because everybody's twice my age and they have kids and you know they're in their 40s and 50s and it's like it's a family but I'm not a part of it which when you're first move here is rough 
So I had met socially this guy named Scott through a mutual friend, and I really liked him and his fiance Deborah. He ran a small production company. They did like industrials and commercials and stuff, but it was like young and scrappy, and his whole team was like in their 20s. I didn't know him that well, but they seemed very fun. So I was very excited a few months later when he hired me to be an editor at his company, which was great. So this is the week before I'm going to start, and I'm on the phone with Scott, and he's telling me what my first assignment will be come this Monday when I'm there. I am going to be editing a video that they are shooting this coming weekend. The client is the restaurant chain Denny's. It is a workplace harassment prevention video, and Scott explains to me it is to teach employees what workplace behaviors are unwelcome and unwanted. Sure, why not? And he says, look, we're shooting this weekend. Why don't you come down to the set? The whole staff of the company is the crew of the video. Come down and meet everybody, which is a great idea because that's a huge low-pressure way to make a good first impression. I'm not doing anything. I just get to hang out. That'll be great. Perfect. And Scott says to me, almost as an aside, and you know what would be fun? You could play a part. No, that would not be fun because I don't understand why you would even want to act. Now, I had graced the boards a few years earlier in college. I had been cast by a friend to play Oscar Madison in a version of The Odd Couple that was performed in a dorm lounge for 30 people. Uh, and I was clearly only cast because in real life, I am Oscar Madison. But I had no idea how to not be me. I could memorize the lines, but I didn't know how to say them that sounded any way real. And as a control freak, it was like my worst case scenario. And my performance was very reminiscent of a stage manager feeding lines to an actor who had forgotten theirs. And it was, it was just not a good experience at all. And I knew that's what I didn't want to do. So on the phone with Scott, I gracefully demurred, thank you so much, but no, I'm good. He's like, ah, oh, come on, it'll be fun. And no, and he kept pushing until I realized, oh, Scott has cast me in this video already. I'm just finding out about it. And there's clearly no money for another actor, should I say no. I am in this video. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have to make the best of it. As I really have no choice. It's fine. So that Sunday morning, I'm driving to the location, which is a Denny's training facility in West Covina, California. As I'm driving, I'm wondering, what is a Denny's training facility and why is it in West Covina? I get there and it's this building and inside of a regular office building, there is inside a full-sized, fully operational replica of a Denny's restaurant, but it's not a Denny's. And like, you're, I'm walking around wondering like, don't they train people for Denny's at Denny's? Like, why do they need a black ops site in the middle of nowhere? What are they training them? And I enter the huge mock dining room, which is the whole crew. It's like 20 people, and it's a lot of energy, and it seems really fun. They're setting up for the shoot, and I run into Scott, who's wonderful, and he introduces me to Rebecca. Now, Rebecca is the client, and he wants me to meet her because when we get into the edit bay, I'm going to be working with her very closely, and she seems great. She's super casual, easy, nice energy. And as we're just sort of getting to know each other a little bit, she says, oh, and I hear you're one of the leading actors of our video today. That's a red flag. And so a coordinator takes me to some of the Denny's booths where they've got sort of wardrobe and stuff. And she hands me just two pages. It's the scene. I go, it's only a page and a half. That's nothing. But as I start to read it, I notice that I am one of only two characters in this scene. I am playing Ron the Bun Man, a driver who's delivering racks of hamburger buns to the restaurant while shamelessly hitting on Jean the waitress. Great. And I'm reading it, and I'm trying to be cool. It's only six lines of dialogue for me, but the last line is my line. As Ron, I have to say, Jean, I'd like to make you my business. And then the stage direction says, and then Ron playfully slaps Gene on the behind. <laughs> Fuck me. Okay, so I'd like to discuss this with the director. I have a couple of notes I'd like to add. And I get up and I start looking for him and I see a friendly face in a sea of strangers, which is Scott's fiance, Deb, which I'm relieved to say hello to. She is also a little bit nervous today because Scott has also roped her into performing in this video, even though she's not an actress. She will be playing the part of Jean the Waitress. 
So the way I'm meeting my new co-workers is by sexually assaulting my new boss's fiance in front of everyone I have to work with to be recorded on camera and played to every Denny's employee. This is not how I want this to start, but again, I have no choice. We're going to do this. Okay. So Deb and I rehearse a little bit and get into a costume and 45 minutes later, they take us to the location, which is the sort of the foe that the storage facility where Denny's gets their uh, deliveries through these big double doors. And the room is packed with equipment. It's like three cameras. There's tons of lights, sound equipment. It's like 10 guys. And like the thing I noticed, the one thing about the crew is they're all staring at me, which is not exactly what I had signed up for. So uh, Deb and I are sort of getting ready. We're standing in front of the double doors and they're sort of adjusting the lights. And like Deb at this point is my only friend in the world. And I'm just like, I'm so like, oh my God, we're going to be terrible. We're going to be horrible. This is going to be terrible. And after like a minute, Deb looks at me and says, you're not helping. I'm like, oh, right. Okay. Yes. Okay. I understand. That is not a good thing. So we get settled in and Scott is outside by some video monitors out by the soda fountain or something. And uh, he yells action and we start performing. And by performing, I mean, I recite my lines now. Uh, and I'm in this weird headspace because I've been this whole time afraid that I'm going to be terrible but I'm also kind of afraid I could be good. And what does that say to people that I'm about to work with that like, I'm a natural at being a sexual like deviance. Like, so I'm trying to do the lines as, as non-threatening as possible. And it's terrible, but we're getting through it. And I get to my last line and I say, Gene, I'd like to make you my business. And then it's go time. But I realized that we had not staged the slap that I need to do. And Deb's butt is further away than I expected. And I'm like, well, in my head, I've got a second to go. Do I come in underhand like a slow pitch? Or do I kind of do a little topspin from the side? Like, how do I get? And so I, I come in underhand, but I'm so nervous about this seeming inappropriate and like doing too much that it's such a gentle lob that when I hit her butt, there's no slap sound and I don't know what to do. So I just stand there. So I'm now just like holding her ass until I hear cut. And I, oh, that did not go well. And Scott comes up. He's like, okay, let's do that again. Um, Deb, great. Rich, let's get into character. Come on. Let's just, let's embrace the character a little bit more. Let's make it fun. And I say, of course, but I'm thinking... I don't want to be in character. I don't, this is not fun. I want, I'm not an actor. I'm an editor. I don't want to do this. But before I can say or do anything, we're going again. And he gets back and he yells action. And I'm, I do want to do a good job. So I try harder. So my version of trying harder is saying the lines the same way, but louder, thinking that that will make it better. So we get through the scene. And when I finally get to, Jane, I'd like to make you my business. I decide to just sort of like more playfully like hit her from the side, but I've overestimated the distance. And so I just hit her on the front of the hip instead of the back of the ass. And it looks like I'm reprimanding her and it doesn't and it cut. And oh, we have to do it again. And then we have to do it again. And then we have to do it again. And after the fourth time, Deb's like, would you just hit my butt and get this over with? And like now I'm feeling bad that she's feeling bad, which is making me even more bad. We do it a fifth time. And after the sixth time, Scott says to Rebecca, the client, could we just cut the slap? Maybe I think we kind of got it. And she very nicely says, no, we need it because the physical act of the slap makes Ron's behavior clearly unwanted and unwelcome. <laughs> So we have to get it. So we're setting up for the seventh take and I hear the sound guys start to laugh really hard. And when I make eye contact to see what it is, they stop laughing. <laughs> and a waterfall of shame washes over me because I've realized I've been so worried about looking stupid that I am wasting their time. And I know for me, nothing is more frustrating than what my time is wasted. And I'm in my head going, Oh, I have to get the seventh take. This has to go well. And I'm just like, I just have to lean into the bun man. And I'm looking at Deb's ass like it's a math problem I have to solve. And I'm just, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I decide in that moment, I am going to employ an acting method that I have just invented. And it's called, fuck it.
and he yells action and I just ham my way as the sleaziest, skeeviest, perviest guy. And the acting is no better, but at least it's intentional. And I get to the last line where I'm just like, gee, I want to make you my business. And I just haul off and slap her. But I've got way too much adrenaline. So I hit her so hard that she's like, and she's like, has to keep her balance, which looks so ridiculous. And Scott yells, cut. You can hear a pin drop. And he looks at Rebecca and Rebecca says, well, it was unwanted and unwelcome. And he goes, all right, we're moving on, everyone. And for me, it's a wrap and I'm done, and I never have to think about this stupid scene ever again. Until the next day at work, when it's my job to edit the video. I have to sit in a dark bay and watch myself on a 24-inch monitor, seven takes, the wide shot, the two shot, the close-ups. And of course, I'm a control freak, so I'm trying to edit it in like the least offensive way so I don't look as bad. But I realize saying all of these creepy things in a flat monotone voice is way weirder, like stalker, killer, homicidal weird. So I have to use the seventh take and I just lean in, lean into the bun man, I just use the seven take. I show it to Scott and Rebecca and they're like, it's not great, but it's good enough. And we lock the picture and I really can put it to bed, forget about it, move on. And I really do become friends with everyone I'm working with. And that day was many, many years ago. And I can promise you since that day, I have never been in a Denny's ever again because I am sure that an employee will recognize me and know that I am unwanted and unwelcome. Thank you very much. This is Risk. This is from one of the craziest albums from the disco era, the Ethel Merman disco album. Uh, some of you might be too young to know who Ethel Merman was. She made this song famous in 1946 in a Broadway show called Annie Get Your Gun. And some of you might be too young to know what disco is, but... <laughs> But, you know, a lot of crazy records were made in the late 70s to cash in on the disco craze. And this was one uh, before Ethel, <laughs> we heard from Rich Tackenberg, who you can find on Twitter at Rich Tack. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, if you don't know, we need all the help we can possibly 
possibly get to keep Risk running this year over at patreon.com slash risk, where there is so much incredible bonus content. We always give a little shout out to anyone who is giving $25 per month or more. And this week, we want to give a shout out to Lauren Piera. Thank you so much, Lauren. This really has been profoundly meaningful to us in keeping the show running through 2020. And we're going to keep needing people's support through 2021. We put up another compilation of three different anecdotes that were sent in by you guys, including Melissa Reeves. Honey, Santa Claus is just a... And then she holds up her little pudgy hand in front of my face and looks at me and slowly says, Mommy, if I'm a good girl, will I be on Santa's nice list? And Mark Modral and Carrie Huffman are also on that compilation, and you can access it for free. Every now and then we put up a little something that people just checking Patreon out can also access for free to get a little taste of what the bonus content over there is like. And if you want to make a one-time donation, go to paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Ellie Dvorkin. This was recently shared at one of our live stream shows. You should look for Ellie's writing in the upcoming book, Moms Who Kill, a collection of funny essays featuring uh, Ophira Eisenberg and others. It's due out in the spring of 2021. And you can find Ellie on Instagram at Ellie Dvorkin. Here she is now with a story we call Bear Down. So, I'm in the labor and delivery room with my husband Josh to my left and a very Long Islandy nurse to my right. My doctor has just left the room to get her splash gear because it's almost time for me to start pushing and this, I'm told, will get messy. The nurse leans in really close to my face and she says, so, did you take the birth classes, sweetie? Do you know the right way to push? No, I didn't take the fucking birth classes. I could not see the point in investing 
time and money in learning a skill that I was only going to need for one day of my life. Now, if they had offered classes on how to raise a well-adjusted, self-sufficient, non-asshole child, I would have (laughs) signed right up. But that's not a thing. So while all my friends were not only taking birth classes, they were hiring doulas and having home births with midwives and having their placentas dried and turned into pills so they could take them to stave off postpartum depression, I didn't even have a birth plan. My plan was I was going to give birth one way or another, and that would be the end of that day. But now that the day has arrived, I'm starting to feel negligent. I look at the nurse and I say, oh, yikes, no, I didn't take the birth classes. Did I make a huge mistake? And to my great relief, she says, nah, those classes could be a real racket. I'm going to give you one piece of advice. And if you do this, it's going to be smooth sailing. And I say, great. I love advice. I am excellent at taking direction. Hit me. And she says, what you're going to want to do is bear down like you're going to the bathroom. You need to push like you're taking a giant poop. (laughs) Now, this was not the advice I had expected to get on this day, but oddly, it was not the first time I had stumbled upon this directive. So, it's two years prior, and I'm in my then boyfriend Josh's bedroom, and we've just had sex, and is early on in the dating part of our relationship, so I wasn't on the pill yet, and condoms were no fun, so we had decided to try a contraceptive experiment called the Today Sponge. (laughs) Now, for those of you who are not familiar, the Today Sponge is a small, round, plastic sponge that you run underwater and insert into your vagina before sex, and it performs two functions. One, it is a physical barrier to prevent the semen from getting to the egg, and it also gives off spermicide to kill the little swimmers before they reach their destination. Sounds really fun, right? Except it wasn't, because the minute I got it inside of me, I hated it. But I had the sex, and it didn't bother me during, but I just, like, felt really full. You know what I mean? Really aware that it was there, and I wanted it the fuck out. But the problem was, you cannot remove the sponge for six hours after you've had sex, or else it doesn't work. So I was literally and figuratively fucked. (laughs) But I had a plan. I figured I would set my alarm for the middle of the night, sneak into the bathroom, whip the thing out, hop back in bed, and that would be the end of the sponge. No more sponge. So that's exactly what I did. I set my alarm and I tried not to wake up Josh. I tiptoed into the bathroom and I reached up in there and I was searching for this ribbon that you're supposed to be able to hook your fingers through to whip out the sponge really easily. And I'm poking and prodding, and it feels very slimy and smushy in there, and I kind of can't tell what's sponge and what's vagina, but I know that I'm not feeling a ribbon. And I'm trying to channel diagrams from health class, like, is there a tunnel that leads left or back where the sponge could have possibly disappeared and I'm not finding it? It doesn't matter. I'm not finding it. But I don't want to panic. So I take a deep breath and I think, and I remember, the Today Sponge came with a pamphlet for instructions to insert it. Surely there has to be some advice on removing it. So I'm in my new boyfriend's bathroom and I'm digging through his garbage looking for the Today Sponge pamphlet and I spread out this big white sheet on the sink and I'm looking and there it is. If you are having trouble retrieving the sponge, simply take a deep breath and bear down like you're going to the bathroom. This will bring the cervix lower to the opening of the vagina, making the sponge easier to locate. So now we have a plan, right? So I put my hands on either side of the sink and I squat a little bit and I bear down like I'm going to the bathroom and I stick my hands up in there and I'm pushing and I'm fishing around and I'm fishing. 
and I can't find it. So now I'm panicking. I'm crying a little bit, my heart's pounding really fast, and I'm so aware of the passage of time. Like, if Josh heard me leave and go to the bathroom, now it's been a long while, and he's certainly heard the crumpling of the paper, and this is a new relationship, and I don't know this bathroom very well, so, like, I'm looking around for something that can help me. Are there forceps? If there were, what would I do with them? Is there a tiny mirror that I can use to put my foot up and look and see what's going on in there? I don't know what to do. It's a full panic, and I can't call 911, and I can't phone a friend, so I give up. I walk back into the bedroom, to Josh's side of the bed, and I shake him awake, and I say, Babe, you have to help me. Now, this is Josh, who I have been friends with for 16 years before we saw each other differently and decided to crossover from friendship to a relationship. And we did not enter into that decision lightly. We knew that this kind of had to be a forever thing because if it wasn't, we were risking our amazing friendship that we had built over more than a decade. And it's amazing when you get together with your best friend. You already know everything about each other. You know, you've seen each other through all kinds of stuff, but you don't imagine having to fish something out of each other's body cavity. And so there's a lot at stake here. Like, what's he going to think of this situation? Is this going to be make or break? I have no idea. So I search his face for signs of revulsion. He remains stoic, yet gentle. He doesn't appear grossed out or freaked out or hesitant. He just looks at me and says, okay, what do I need to do? So I climb onto the bed and I fill him in and I spread my legs up with my knees up, kind of like I'm at the gynecologist with my feet in the stirrups and I bear down like I'm pooping all the while praying to the gods of gastroenterology that I do not actually poop in this man's bed and he sticks his fingers in and kind of looks up not because he can't look me in the eye but because I really feel he's honing in on his sense of touch and he's fishing around and he's fishing around and I'm bearing down and he's fishing and a lot of time feels like it's passing until finally he pulls his hand out victorious and says this was in you Now, to clarify, the sponge expands to several times its actual size once it's in a person. So what he was holding resembled a giant, slimy, hard-boiled egg. But that is the moment when I knew. This is the guy. This is the guy who can handle birth and baby vomit and midnight trips to the emergency room. This is the guy who can handle me. So we're in the labor and delivery room and my husband, Joshua, is to my left and the nurse from Rankankama is to my right and they are shouting, push Ellie, bear down, bear down, push, you can do it. And in that last final push, out comes my baby and along with him, a ton of blood and afterbirth and disgustingness. And once again, I look into Josh's eyes, wondering if I will see shock or fear or disgust, but I see none of that. There is only calm, respect, appreciation, and love. So now it's eight years later, and we still hold on to that advice that we got from the Today Sponge pamphlet and the labor and delivery nurse. When life deals us with a really complicated set of circumstances, kind of like the ones we are all in right now, we clasp hands and we bear down, just like we're pooping. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Salt and Peppa behind me now, and we just heard from Ellie Dvorkin. Well, I wanted to say a few words about where we are at, if you recognize this tune, long time ago, end of the 1800s, a Russian composer named Dvorak came over to America and started composing a symphony called the New World Symphony about how moved he was about American, the democratic melting pot that we were, especially African-American spirituals. And so this melody became the most famous part of that and is often called Going Home, this song. And this recording of it is by two of our jazz greats, Charlie Hayden and Hank Jones. I'm recording this on Sunday, January 10th, 2021 so by the time you hear this god only knows what else might have happened but we have arrived at that moment that a lot of us have been desperately trying to warn fellow citizens about for years this insurrection where our capital was stormed by fascist white supremacists it was uh, uh, one of the lowest points in our history, and like 9-11, an advertisement to like-minded, die-hard cultists out there that such insurrection sorts of activity is much more possible than they might have ever thought before. Ron Suskind is a, a journalist who has interviewed a lot of uh, cabinet members and higher-ups around the White House and intelligence officials, and he said just a few days ago that uh, one of those folks estimated that about 15 million of the 74 million people who voted for Trump are so devoted to Trump and that whole QAnon, MAGA sort of cult that they could be quote-unquote activated to join in to that sort of activity we saw at the Capitol on Wednesday. There's a phenomena in um, history, an, an anthropological phenomena, that historians refer to as the good Germans problem. It refers to how in the early 30s, about a third of the populace of Germany did not take the Nazi takeover of their government seriously. They felt like, oh, well, what can you do? Don't want to rock the boat and, you know, some sort of stasis will hold, you know, let's not worry. Let's just focus on our own comfort and, you know, crazy people will do crazy things, but let's just keep on keeping on. And it is generally thought by experts in fascism that that attitude of complacency among that many people was absolutely crucial to the Nazis being able to accomplish what they finally accomplished. At this point, we have seen the children put in concentration camps. We have seen Charlottesville. We've seen 370,000 of us dead. And some people still don't want to get worked up about it. History has shown again and again, you cannot appease fascists. You can't meet them halfway. You can't try to move on and get back to the prior status quo under which they rose when they're beating down the doors. Liberals are, are very used to a behavioral pattern over the past 40 years or so not getting very involved as citizens, except for voting. And then when our guy is elected, checking out, going to sleep. Well, we just can't make that mistake this time. 
Trump should be impeached and removed from office and barred from ever holding office again. There should be an investigation on the scale of the 9-11 Commission into just how this fascist movement got so huge, just how complicit members of the Republican Party and law enforcement and online agitators have been. People need to be held accountable. There should be an investigation on the scale of the 9-11 Commission into how and why the response to the pandemic was so not a response at all. I would imagine that you might be exhausted. I am exhausted. I am wrung out like a rag. But we're going to have to keep organizing. We're going to have to keep marching. I think eventually we might even have to have a general strike like they just did in India to put pressure on the Democratic Party to reform democracy, to battle the climate crisis, to fight economic inequality, to root out systemic racism, and to hold the people who enabled and facilitated the rise of fascism in America accountable. You know, we have to remember that if 15 million Trump cultists might be willing to end American democracy by any means necessary, it's going to take millions more of us to keep them from doing that. You know, we did not hold the right wing accountable for Iran-Contra. We did not hold them accountable for the Iraq war. We did not hold them accountable for the torture program. We did not hold them accountable for the Wall Street fuckery that amounted in the total meltdown of the world economy in 2008. We had all the fuckery around the 2000 election, and now we have had just four straight years of crime and fuckery and a total brainwashing of millions of people in batshit, insane, blatantly untrue. All of these Republicans still insisting that it was a landslide victory for Trump. These vile liars like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley just taking advantage of this insane fascist white supremacist movement. The damage that has been done over the past four years. <laughs> the people I knew who, when he was elected, were like, whatever, it's just politics, right? No. We will be healing from these past four years for the rest of our lifetimes. For the rest of our lifetimes, it will be, can this nation remake itself? We're now entering into either collapsing into the fascism they want or a period like the Reformation. And remember, <laughs> by playing nice... During the Reformation, we made all sorts of clan members and former Civil War assholes from the South into governors and senators and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that we ended up being haunted by that war to this day. So all I can say is I know your probably quite despondent sometimes, so overwhelmed sometimes. I certainly am all the time now. So we really do have to double down on all our self-care and keep looking for ways to pressure our leaders, look for ways to get active and stay alert and do whatever we can as the citizens of this country to keep it from becoming the utter and complete nightmare that those people who stormed the Capitol want it to be. I had to kind of bitterly laugh because there were a few years there where people were saying, oh my God, is this going to become like The Handmaid's Tale? And uh, 
I, I had to laugh because I, I saw those images on Wednesday and I was like, nope, a lot worse. <laughs> Nothing on that TV show looked quite as heinous as, as that movement is. So yeah, folks, we've just got to stay strong. You know, I ordinarily avoid talking about politics on the show to whatever extent I feel I can. I, I just think, <laughs> you know, there have been so many things that have happened over the past four years that just, I just feel like it's an abdication of my being a human being to have a voice and to be able to record it and put it out there and not acknowledge what is happening. You know, the new right-wing talking point is that taking away a Twitter account from a racist is so unfair, it's like 1984, the Orwell novel. <laughs> Folks, if, if 1984 had been about a failed attempt at installing fascism, for which the fascists faced consequences, that wouldn't have made for a whole novel. That would be the story of a functioning democracy functioning. Obviously, in Orwell's story, the fascists succeeded in overthrowing democracy prior to page one. But here's the thing. A functioning democracy functioning is the opposite of what most of the most quote-unquote respectable Republicans want. Once again, we hear whisperings that behind the scenes, men like McConnell are promising that by any means necessary, they will thwart anything and everything that Democrats attempt to do to fix anything for the next four years, no matter how crucial any of it is for the survival of the nation or its citizens. Those guys, those quote-unquote respectable Republicans are the ones that Democratic leadership is going to be so tempted to, as they have for the past 40 or so years, avoid being, quote-unquote, divisive toward. The push to be all about unity and just moving on is going to be huge. Dems usually opt for just giving lip service to being tough on the other side which does indeed rile up the other side's base, but then not being tough on actually doing anything about it in real life, which allows the descent toward fascism to continue to fester and grow. Then Republicans get in the way of Dems accomplishing anything, and they say, see, working people? They talk the talk, but don't accomplish anything for you. Vote for our strongman. So we have to put an end to that cycle. So I hate to sound so bleak, and I know a lot of people don't like. When I talk about politics on the show, you know, I'll get emails, people saying, why on earth are you talking about politics? Your show is supposed to be about human beings' lives. Well, politics is about human beings' lives. We've just lost 370,000 of them. And the way that democracy works best is when the best people in that society really invest themselves in making sure that it gets better. So let's do that. Okay, um, don't forget you can pitch us your stories, folks, at risk-show.com slash submissions. You, there's all sorts of helpful information there. And if you have any more questions about pitching us, whether it be those three and a half to four minute long anecdotes or a full length story to be on one of our live streams or a radio star, whatever you might have in mind, or if you know someone who you think should be on the show, let me know. I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. There is a 15% off deal of everything at the Risk store from January 12th through January 16th 
That is at risk-show.com slash shop. Don't forget, I do one-on-one storytelling consultations at kevinallison.com. And you can follow us on all of our socials at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Like you're taking a giant poop.